0: This is the Shameless Mom Academy episode 462 with Jasmine Bradshaw. Show notes for this episode, including any links mentioned in the episode, as well as any discount codes from our sponsors, can be found by going to shamelessmom.com and clicking on episode 462. Welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm your host, Sarah Dean. I'm here to give you and other passionate, driven, unapologetic moms Jasmine Bradshaw is a researcher, educator, podcaster, and shameless mom who truly believes that creating a more loving, inclusive, and just society starts within the sacred walls of our homes. Her podcast, First Name Basis, exists to give parents the tools they need to teach their children about race, religion, and culture. Her community makes parents feel empowered and gives them the confidence they need to create lasting change in their sphere of influence. Jasmine and I connected via a mutual friend, Rachel Nielsen, who hosts the 3 and 30 podcast for moms, a few months ago. And as soon as we connected, as soon as I saw the work that Jasmine was doing and started binging her show, I immediately was hopeful that I could have her as a guest here on the Shameless Mom Academy. And we started communicating about it. So this has actually been a few months in the making. And I'm so excited that Jasmine is here. And I'm very, very excited honored that she was open to taking the time. Her work right now requires a lot of energy. She has a growing, quickly growing community of moms, women, families that she's supporting in her work and in her mission to educate families around race. And so The fact that she would take some time out to come talk to our community during the peak of her work right now just means so much to me. So I want you to listen. I want you to learn. And I really want you to go support Jasmine. Go support her through Patreon. She is an extremely talented educator. She's an extremely generous educator. And I know that you, like me, are going to learn so much. Every time she puts out a new episode, I think, oh, my gosh, I feel like I know like 5 to 10% about what I should know on that topic. And then I listen and I feel like, holy cow, I just got like the best history lesson or the best like education around a topic. And I am just consistently very grateful, but also consistently so impressed by how well Jasmine can bring information and research into the way she supports families and talks through these really big, heavy topics. I was joking, and I think I said it in our interview together, she's a former second grade teacher. And I was like, this explains a lot because she's able to so clearly... Present information in a way that is very simple and clear so that we can integrate it quickly in order to put it to use immediately, in order to put words to action and words to power really quickly, which I think is so significant and so meaningful right now. So I want you to listen in to hear Jasmine share why and how race exists as a social construct, how to lay the groundwork for conversations about race in order to have deeper, more difficult conversations with your children as they get a little older, how to talk to your child's school about their efforts toward diversity and inclusion, how to talk to your child's school about the versions of American history they choose to teach, how to be a better anti-racist in order to teach your children how to be anti-racist, and how you can move from good intentions to confident action in your anti-racism work. So with all that said, I'm so excited and so truly honored to welcome Jasmine Bradshaw to the Shameless Mom Academy. Jasmine, welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm so, so excited and really, really grateful to you for you being here today.
1: Oh, I am so excited for this conversation.
0: I absolutely love your show, so this is totally an honor. Oh, thank you. So we've actually been talking about doing this show for a couple months now, or doing this episode and interview for a couple months now. So it feels like it's been a long time coming, and I feel like the buildup is—we've just been like fangirling each other back and forth. Like I can't wait!
1: I can't <laughs> wait! I can't wait! I can't wait. <laughs> so. Yes, and I love that we were going to have this conversation before the country really changed into having this conversation, because it feels really like we've been. Prepared. Pairing. So I'm so excited.
0: Yeah, yeah. I know when when everything happened after George Floyd's death at the end of May, we were already in conversation about booking this interview. And I remember thinking, like, maybe we should wait a minute. I don't want to add to Jasmine's plate right now. So I'm just I'm so excited and really grateful because I know that you have a lot going on and let's we need to talk about that. Like, let's how are you doing? As a 33 week (laughs) pregnant biracial woman living in a pandemic, living in a cultural revolution while educating other people on race. That's a lot.
1: Yes, it is a lot. And I mean, to be honest, I'm pretty wiped. I'm really exhausted. It just all happened so fast. I mean, I've been talking about this for a while now, but people's interest in it happened really fast and change really fast. So I didn't really have an opportunity to like establish boundaries around my space or my time. So I'm really trying to step back and do that now. And then so that I can have like a really great relationship with my community going forward.
0: I I appreciate that. And that's it's hard. It's hard when you when you have a big phase of growth that you weren't planning. (laughs) And when things when you're navigating a a time that personally is challenging it's so that's a lot to assimilate and a lot to yes. and integrate and all those things. So, and then doing it while you're also super pregnant and have a toddler.
1: <laughs> yes, well thank you for asking because it really it took like a lot of people asking me how are you doing really for me to step back and be like, "Uh, eh, yeah, I could be better."
0: <laughs> yeah. And I think we have to give ourselves, I think as moms and as women give ourselves space to be honest in how we answer that question, I think is really important. And I think, you know, when you add the layers of, you know, like from I'm not the way I'm experiencing the world right now as a white woman is very different than how you're experiencing the world. And I think to be honest in our answers from either perspective is is really, really important. And it allows for more conversation and more compassion and more empathy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you are so right. So let's talk a little bit about all the things. So I want to start by diving into and I, I'll i tell our listeners what I told you prior to hitting record is that I love your podcast and I've been binging it the last couple months and I want to somehow try to fit like every episode you've ever done into our one conversation today. (laughs) We have a lot to cover, but but, so I'm going to make sure everyone goes and listens to First Name Basis so that you can handpick all the episodes that speak to you as women, as moms, as leaders right now. But I want to talk right now to kind of lay the groundwork for this conversation around race and race as a social construct, because this is actually one of the first things I heard you talk about. And you actually were talking about it on three and 30 Rachel Nielsen's podcast. And this was eye opening for me. So before we dive into talking to our kids about race, can you talk to us about race as a social construct?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. This, when I learned this, it was one of the most liberating things for me to understand. And I learned it just a few years ago as an adult. And it's one of those things that I just feel like everyone needs to understand where race really came from so that we can start to dismantle the damage that it's doing in our community. So the first thing that I started to understand was that in 2000, the year 2000, there was the Human Genome Project and they put out all this research, and in their research, they found that there is no genetic difference between people of different races, that we are all at the nucleotide level, so just the teeny-tiniest biological level that we are, we are all identical, 996 to 99.8%, which that blew my mind, and so I was like, okay, wait, if that is the case then why do we separate ourselves in this way? Like, where did it come from? Did somebody make it up? Did we make it? Like, what happened? So I was able to trace it back to these two scientists. And... The first is, his name is Carl Linnaeus, and he is the father of modern taxonomy. And taxonomy is just a fancy way of saying that he classified species into categories. So he looked at all the animals and put them into categories. Or if you, I always think of the first species I think of as spiders. Like there are so many different types of spiders. So he looked at all the spiders and gave them all names and put them into all these categories. Well, while he was working on that... He also decided that he should be doing not just plants and animals, but he should also be categorizing humans. So he begins to look at the world and he decides that there are four categories of humans. There's white or European, red or Native American, yellow or Asian, and black or African. So Carl Linnaeus, the father of modern taxonomy, he is training another scientist named Frederick Blumenbach. So Blumenbach is kind of his apprentice. And in 1775, which I know dates are kind of arbitrary sometimes, but this is such an important one. Frederick Blumenbach, he writes a book called on the natural varieties of mankind and in his book he talks about the different categories of men that him and carl linnaeus work together to create so he takes the four categories that carl linnaeus established and then he adds another category called malay and that means like people of the island or brown so now we have five different categories Well, Frederick Blumenbach also decided that instead of calling people white or European, he wanted to use the name Caucasian. So he was the person who coined this term Caucasian. And when I was looking into it, I'm like, where did he get that from? Well, one of his passions in life was skulls. So a long time ago, when he's doing his research, the shape of your skull and the size of your skull is said to determine like your intelligence level and your capacity as a person, right? So he has a collection of 80 different human skulls that he studies. And the one that he thinks is the most beautiful is a skull from a place in Europe called the Caucasus Mountains. And so from there, he decides, well, all of the white people are from this place, and have this similar skull to Caucasian, which is funny to me because he wasn't even from there himself, but he just thought it was so beautiful that he decided that we as white people are going to be Caucasian. And in his book on the natural variety of mankind, he goes on to describe how the Caucasian skull from the Caucasus mountain is the superior skull. And then every other type, so Malay, black, red, yellow are degenerations of that skull. And he kind of puts them into a ranking with white at the top and black at the bottom. And so I told you to remember that date, 1775. And that's so important because as Americans, what happens the very next year, 1776, the Declaration of Independence, right? So we become a country. And in the Declaration of Independence, it says, We believe that all men are created equal. Well, how could you possibly say that we believe all men are created equal while you are enslaving, kidnapping, torturing, separating families, raping, all of these things, an entire group of people, of the Africans? Well, it only works if you believe that they are a degeneration of the superior and that they need to be told what to do and ruled over and all of those things, and they're seen as not actually being men so you can say all men are created equal if they don't count as
0: men Mm. and this is such an eye-opening history lesson and every episode of your show is so eye-opening in so many ways but such an eye-opening history lesson because i never knew how race started as a social construct and this the history behind it is it's so strange (laughs) that like one guy Yes, did all that. It. Like, it's very overwhelming and strange. And in like the whole piece around the skulls and finding that like deciding that like, this is the perfect skull or the most beautiful skull. It's all just so shocking to me that that's where this all began. And here we are now. And Oh, my gosh. Yes,
1: absolutely. And something I always think about, there's an author named ta Coates, and he says race is the child of racism, not the mm-hmm. father, which means like racism existed. They were already enslaving people and doing all of these things, and then they used science, quote-unquote science, to help explain what they were already
0: doing. Right, and give it justification. Mm-hmm. So with that as the background and the backdrop, how do we start conversations with our kids around race and skin tone? And I actually, I wanna be clear around why I'm asking the question in that way, because for me, in listening to you, you talk around race and skin tone, I kind of realized the difference between the two and the way you talk about kids or talk with kids about race is often conversations around skin tone versus race. And so can you talk a little bit about all of that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, with our little littles, like the story that I just told you, you can absolutely explain that to your kids. And I have, but I wouldn't do it until they're a little bit older. I was a second grade teacher and I definitely shared that with seven and eight year olds. They're ready. But our little, little ones who are kindergarten and younger, they need to be having conversations around skin tone because our first two goals when they are that young is affirming who they are and who they are on the outside, who they are on the inside, everything about them, and then teaching them to appreciate differences And helping them understand that even if differences cause friction they are a normal part of life that we can work through together so when you're talking about little ones children actually start to recognize skin tone when they're six months old so they don't have any negative connotations around it because they haven't been socialized into the society like we have but they can tell whose skin is darker and they can tell whose skin is lighter and they actually start to develop prejudice around skin tone by the time they're in preschool. So a lot of people think that just not saying anything to children about skin tone or about race is going to make it so that they quote unquote, don't see color. But in reality, they're totally seeing it. And they're picking up on the fact that the adults around them are not saying anything about it. And so they're like, if I see something that is so completely obvious, and nobody I mean, we give them language for everything, right? We point to the dog and we say, this is a dog it has white fur with black spots on it well that's so obvious to kids when we're looking at other people they're like wait a minute if i see this and it's totally clear in my mind that this person has dark skin or this person has light skin and my parents aren't saying anything they're taking cues from us about oh that's something that we don't talk about so one of the first things that you can do is prepare an environment that invites those questions. So are you having books and movies in your house or dolls, different color toys? Every Everything in your house should have different skin tones or even craft supplies. Like when you're getting out supplies for your child to draw a picture or color a picture, do they have options where the peach isn't the only color that represents skin tone? right? So that's the first thing, because visibility teaches our children who is important to us. So if something is missing from our lives, they think, well, I must not need it because my parents give me everything I need. They love me. They protect me. They take care of me. So if there's something in my life that is not there, like a person who is brown, then I probably don't need that in my life. So that's kind of where they start to develop these prejudices when we are not even saying anything negative about people of color. It's just that they are so it in from the environment yeah so another suggestion i would make is that go places where you can interact with communities of color go to restaurants go to cultural festivals or go to different churches you don't necessarily have to like go to a church and stick with it but churches have activities all the time they're always throwing fairs and banquets and all these different things that you could visit Or think about when you are enrolling your child in a sports team, is there an opportunity for you to take them to a sports team where they're gonna have a coach who's a person of color? Because not like being around people of color is important, but also having like mentorships and people who are able to help your children guide them and show them that these are people who need to be respected and revered and loved in in your community.
0: Yeah, I love that one. This episode is supported by Nutrafol. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster growing hair with less shedding. Oh my gosh, I am a heavy shedder. So if you are a heavy shedder, or if you are someone who's wanting to thicken your hair, I definitely want you to try out Nutrafol. I have loved using it myself and I know multiple other people who've used it and have found great results. While many supplements rely solely on ingredient studies, Nutrafol clinically tests final formulations to ensure their efficacy. In a clinical study, 86% of women reported improved hair growth after taking Nutrafol Women's Hair Growth Supplement for six months. Find out why 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Go to Nutrafol.com. That's N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code SHAMELESS. Nutrafol.com, code SHAMELESS. This episode is supported by Earn In. Life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should Payday? The money you earn now can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earnin is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Super, super easy to use. You just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck. Then you can access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Can you talk about because I heard you talk about this on your show recently, and it actually came up for us in a situation. So we've gone to three different marches related to Black Lives Matter in the last few weeks or month or so. And the first one we went to was this very small one, specific group of people, pretty much all white. So then we went to the second one, <laughs> super big one, huge run, it was really well run, run by these a youth group. And all teenagers of color, mostly black. And it was really, really cool to see these young people come together. And they just did this amazing job leading thousands of people. But it was in a much more diverse part of town and a huge spectrum of color in terms of representation at this march. And we're in the middle of the march. My son and I are walking next to each other. There's two Muslim women walking next to us who are fully covered. And Vinny looks up at me and he goes, Mom, I thought there would be more white people here. (laughs) I was like, oh my gosh. And these two women walking down, they kind of look and I'm like, oh, here we are. (laughs) And because I worked with kids and I know that kids can say things like this, I was kind of prepared to be, you know, with an answer. And I said, oh, I said, well, the one we went to, you know, in our neighborhood was different. But look at this one is has people of so many more colors. It's a bigger, it's in a different neighborhood. And it's a much bigger event. And isn't that so great? He was like, yeah, like he was super into it. And I tried to just keep everything very matter of fact. Mm -hmm. But these are also conversations. And I'm totally open to feedback on how I handled it. But I also think these are conversations that sometimes we just shut down because we're like horrified that our kids said something. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Oh, absolutely. (laughs) And you are not alone, this happens all the time. And I think one of those things is that as parents, we need to be ready to embrace those questions. So it sounded like you were ready. And not necessarily ready to answer the question because you don't always have to have the answer and you need to understand, like we all need to understand that we are as adults learning ourselves. So it's okay if you don't have the right answer or you're not exactly sure what to say, but embracing their questions and saying, I am so glad that you asked that, why don't we, look into that together later, or just what you were saying, like, isn't it amazing that so many people of different colors and religions and cultures are here? And then also pointing out Don't you wish that there were more white people who are standing up against this? Don't you wish that there are other people who had the, like, you know that the people that you are friends with and the people you love, we know that they are good people who have good values. Maybe we should invite them with us next time because I know that they would want to be a part of this too.
0: Yeah. I love that. This episode is supported by Magic Spoon. I'm curious if anyone's kids have been like snack obsessed in quarantine. (laughs) My child is very snack obsessed and it's a lot managing the requirements for like hourly snacks and it annoys me to no end. Sometimes (laughs) the number and the frequency and the size of all the snacks. So I am constantly on the lookout for snacks that I feel good about providing and Magic Spoon cereal is definitely one of those. So growing up, cereal definitely fell into two camps. It was like either like dry, gross and flavorless Or it was Lucky Charms, (laughs) like full of sugar, no nutrient value, just total junk that you were putting in your body. Magic Spoon has found the way to brilliantly combine healthy cereal with things that, with cereal that tastes really, really good and brings you joy. And this is a great way to fuel your children in their snacking in this pandemic, also fuel yourself for a quick and easy breakfast or snack. So, Magic Spoon cereal is cereal that has 11 grams of protein and only three net grams of carb per serving. They have four flavors. And when you hear these four flavors, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, it takes me back. They have cocoa, fruity, frosted, and blueberry, which totally like replicates your favorite like cocoa pebbles, fruity pebbles, frosted flakes, like all the cereals that I literally was not allowed to ever have in my house growing up. These are what Magic Spoon aims to replicate in a healthier version, and they do an amazing job. So Magic Spoon tastes awesome. And honestly, it's almost too good to be true. It's keto friendly, gluten free, grain free, soy free, low carb, GMO free. And I can't tell you how tasty it is. Vinny and I Got real excited when we taste tested the cocoa. We were Because it looks amazing. So when you're pouring it, you're like, please let this be as good as it looks. And it is. So I want you to go to magicspoon.com slash SMA for the Shameless Mom Academy to grab a variety pack and try it today. Make sure to use the promo code SMA at, sh- at checkout to get free shipping. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product that it is backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if for any reason you don't like it, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash S-M-A and use the code S-M-A for free shipping. Thanks so much to Magic Spoon for supporting the show. Go to magicspoon.com S-M-A, use the code S-M-A and get your variety pack delivered right to your door. And I totally agree with you about how different kinds of exposure creates opportunities for different kinds of conversations. And that's been really interesting too, as we've gotten, we've incorporated different cultural experiences just in, walk or in marching, which has been super interesting and really eye-opening but also in incorporating new books and then carrying the con- drawing connections between the books and Vinny's school experiences, it created a lot of opportunity for conversation, which I think has been really valuable and really interesting. And I was doing an interview a couple of weeks ago, and I was sharing that now every time like new books come from we get from our book order (laughs) my son is like are these more black lives matter books (laughs) (laughs) he's like is this gonna be harry potter or is this black lives matter (laughs) he's like which one are we reading tonight (laughs) that is so amazing but he's open to all of it he does get a little bit annoyed though when i'm like only going to read social justice books every night. <laughs> so we have to balance it between Harry Potter. But I do think that like he knows that this is something that we're talking about. And this is something that we're really aware of and we're being really considerate. And it's interesting now that as we've integrated these conversations more and more, and it's been slowly over the last year, I would say, because he's probably at the beginning of or the middle of kindergarten, we started this and now he's just finished first grade. But right now we're having much more conversation around this. It's been interesting how he will point things out to me now. And he's starting to start the the conversations. And that is something I didn't expect. Like I thought it would always be like, let me get this book and order it. So then we can have a conversation. And it's actually him starting to point things out, which is totally unexpected and very exciting. Like I love that he's creating some of the opportunities for education.
1: Mm -hmm. And that is so key because you open that door and you open that line of communication. The research says that the questions that our kids have about race and racism, they don't go away just because they're not asking them doesn't mean they're not there. So depending on how their caregiver or their parent reacts to their questions is going to determine whether they keep asking them. And when children have questions that they don't know, The answer to, they'll make up answers. And a lot of the time, especially with little ones, their answers make sense in their mind once they say them out loud, but you're like, okay, no, that's not correct. So we have to be ready to like lovingly correct these children. One time I had these preschoolers and there was a little boy who said, a black child who said that he loved to eat chocolate. And the white child was like, Oh, that's why your skin is brown. So you can see a hundred percent how this young child got to that conclusion, like that totally makes sense. You like to eat chocolate so you have brown skin. And so we had a conversation right then about actually the color of our skin comes from net melanin and it's in our skin and it doesn't have anything to do with what we eat. But me being ready to lovingly correct them, I didn't say, no, You know that is not right. Because as adults, our tension about talking about race, the kids, they are so good at picking that stuff up. So if we can take a deep breath and kind of let go of that tension when we're going into those conversations and answering those questions, it's going to feel much more open for them. And then they'll have experiences like you did where your son is bringing it up.
0: Yeah. One of the things that came up for us is, so I'm a redhead and redheads, you know, we have like no pigment. <laughs> and so I'm like very, very, I'm almost translucent with a lot of freckles. And so when we started talking about skin tone, my son was like, oh, but when we put our arms next to each other, he's like, look, I'm brown. And I'm like, Aww. well, I'm like, compared to me, yes. But in the grand <laughs> scheme of things, not at all. <laughs> so it is super interesting how neutral these statements can be, and how natural the conversation can be. And it just the conversations that open up are really, really fascinating, and can be really fun for me to be like, actually, or not, and how interesting and look how I have freckles. I mean, like I'm 1 million freckles everywhere, but you don't have any. And it's just very matter of fact conversation. And then his perspective shifts. And it's like, oh, that's how things are. It's not like doesn't have to be this heavy, heated, you know, I think adults talking about race, those are the places we go to because of how we've been conditioned. But with kids, it is very matter of fact, and very neutral in many cases.
1: Yes, exactly. And I always try to remind myself that like, if I were baking a cake with my toddler, and she mixed up the sugar and the salt, I would just tell her it wouldn't be like, right, a lecture or a long sit down conversation, I would just be like, Oh, you know, that's actually the sugar and not the salt, we need to switch those. And so having it as a place that's not this really stressful, awkward thing for us as adults, I think we bring more attention to the conversation than the little ones do. Totally.
0: How can we evolve conversations as our kids get older? Because I do, I mean, there's obviously is a place for conversations to take a much heavier position because there's a time and a place to acknowledge beyond skin tone and beyond what kids might just see out on a playground and talking more about like what actually happens in our criminal justice system and what actually is happening right now in the world. and with George Floyd and uh, Breonna Taylor and all of these different circumstances, how do we evolve those conversations?
1: Yeah, when our children are getting older, they turn into conversations about taking action. So when they're young, we're talking about what's going on around them. And then when they're older, we're talking about the power that they have to take action and make change. So discussing those current events, standing in solidarity, going to marches and helping them understand what are the privileges that you hold within our society and how can you use those to protect the people around you? So something as simple as if you are standing in line at the store and you see a black person who's in front of you being asked for their ID but you notice that no one else when they're trying to use a credit card but you notice that no one else was asked for their ID when they were trying to use a credit card you could speak up and say wait a minute you didn't ask anybody else for their ID were you planning to ask me for my ID and the salespeople are usually very taken aback that anybody said anything, and then it can go from there. And the person who is experiencing this bias and experiencing this like lack of privilege will be able to know, okay, this is someone who wants to stand in solidarity with me and change this.
0: Right, I love that distinction around conversations around taking action and taking a stand and, and looking closely at privilege, because I think that those are much bigger conversations, but also, the conversations that we want our young people to be having. And if we can start those at an early age, I think there's so much more hope for how young people will be justice seekers and be activists and be change makers and all of that moving forward.
1: Yes. And anytime we're making that transition from just kind of helping them know what's going on in the environment to really changing the environment, I like to look at it from a lens of fairness. Children absolutely understand fairness, right? If somebody gets two snacks and they only get one, you are going to hear about it. They're like, you that's not fair. So putting these big concepts like racism or sexism into a lens of what's fair and what's not fair and how can we use what we have and what we know to help make things more fair. Children understand that no problem.
0: Yeah. Do you have an age range that you would suggest for having for when you can start having more bigger conversations around harder topics? So like specifically, and one of the things that we told Vinny about was police officers killing George Floyd. Like that's a big conversation. And I was a little bit like, oh, I don't... do I tell them, do we tell them that like an officer put his knee on his neck and for a long time and like how at age seven, I don't know. I just wasn't sure if that was an appropriate age, but I also was like, I don't want my kid to not know these things are happening. But I'd also want to traumatize him and have him like, not able to sleep in his own room anymore. So do you have an age range or a suggestion? Or maybe it's more based on a child's, you know, sensitivities and temperament around that shift in conversation around how kind of yeah, how deep you go?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So this is tough, because you know, every kid is different. But I think that once you've laid that foundation of helping children understand the importance of differences and the power of differences and that everybody's different and that's one of the constants of our world. You need to lay that foundation first, no matter what age they are, and then you can dive into these conversations around injustice. So, I think that's what's hard just because parents are all starting at different spaces. But, like in my house, I've been thinking about it since before she was born. So, we have been having conversations about melanin and all of those things. And I did obviously, I didn't tell her about George Floyd. She's almost three. That would be ridiculous. <laughs> right. But she saw a picture of my sister at a protest and she asked, what is Aunt Nina doing? And I said, she's at a protest. It's when somebody does something that is unkind or not nice and we have to go and tell them that they didn't do something nice and help and try to fix it. Like that was all she needed to know. And she said, you know, oh. And she wanted to point out all the people in the picture and all of that kind of stuff. So you as a parent will really know what your kid is ready for. But I think it's a matter of building that foundation first of understanding their power to have make change in the community. Because when we lay these heavy things on our children and just say, yeah, this happened, well, they're gonna walk away feeling so sad and kind of confused. And we're not trying to protect them from sad feelings. Yes, this is horrible and it's heavy, but we need them to understand that it doesn't have to be this way. So that I think is the most important piece of the conversation, no matter what their age is, is okay, now what are we as a family going to do about it?
0: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I appreciate that clarification, because I totally agree with that groundwork. And foundation being there does create the space to have those deeper conversations or the more difficult conversations. Let's talk a little bit about our kids schools, and the versions. So let's actually I want to talk about two pieces of this. So we were in this really fortunate preschool situation which i did not fully appreciate at the time until i had something to contrast it with but <laughs> Vinny, in th- four years of preschool had three black teachers which wow at the time i was like cool uh, but like, I didn't think of it as an anomaly. <laughs> I was like, this is great. Maybe this is just how education is now. And then we started like kindergarten. And I was like, Oh, this is not how it is. <laughs> so this has been interesting for us. And we are in a school where the student body, there's a decent amount of diversity in the student body. And that's something that the school really seeks out being inclusive and diverse within among the student body and making creating different opportunities for that to happen within the community. But that is not mirrored in the leadership in the school and in the the teaching staff and faculty. And so this has been an area of contention for me and something that I definitely think needs to change and shift and evolve. And it's also something I've talked to the administration about. And I told you in our pre-interview, I'm like, I'm the squeaky wheel that's like in the middle of a pandemic sending emails to the school (laughs) like, hey, I know you guys have a lot on your plate, but I'm just curious about like race. Which I'm so glad that you are, because that is what is needed. I am sure they're like, when is her child going to be done here? <laughs> <laughs> Counting down the days. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Only seven or only eight years left to go. But how do we have conversations with schools and with administrations about what we're seeing in terms of representation in the student body or the teaching staff? And then in this, you might want to address these totally separately, also around the history that's being taught and the versions of history and the whitewashing of history. Because these are two really big things that are on my radar and they're big topics. And I think that as a parent in a school, again, like being the squeaky wheel does feel super awkward. But it's also a burden I'm willing to take on if it will create change. So I'd love to hear your take on those things.
1: Yeah, oh wow. this is one of the best questions, and I've gotten it a lot, so I'm so excited to have this conversation. What I have found is the best way that people feel like they can kind of lay down their swords and actually engage is when I start by asking a question. So I would say something like, what is your plan to use history to address social justice issues in the classroom? Or what's your plan to make your teaching staff more inclusive that so that it better represents the population that you're serving? That way you're giving them an opportunity to say, oh, you know, this is what we're doing. And then you can give your ideas for how to do that better or how to expand on that. Or they just have to say straight out, oh, we have no plan, right? And so it kind of puts them in this position where they're not if they are doing something, they're not feeling like, oh, you know, she doesn't even know the half of what we do. And if they aren't doing something, they're like, okay, whoa, now this is on my radar. So if you get that response of, well, we're not doing anything, I would probably go to the district level. I know that a lot of districts right now specifically are working on putting together diversity and inclusion committees and all of that type of thing. But also, one of the biggest things that I learned in being a teacher was that the PTA has so much sway over the school. Like they decide the events that are put on, they decide all of the kind of extras and they, depending on where you go to school and your PTA, they have a lot of sway over funding as well, and what the extra funds go to. So you can ask the PTA, hey, can we start a committee that is going to address these issues? I think that if you're gonna go to the school, you're probably going to have to be willing to be a part of the solution and give your time and your energy. So kind of reflect on that before you go through all of this. But I would go, I would definitely talk to the district and I would talk to the PTA as well so that you can start you know, getting the ball rolling.
0: So it feels like such a big win. So I want you to go check out Mysteries About True Histories wherever you listen to podcasts. You can tune into Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you're listening to this podcast. So go check out Mysteries About True Histories. To listen in and have some fun with your kid while they learn today. This episode is supported by Aquatrue. Having clean, safe water is the last thing you want to worry about, but unfortunately, according to extensive research by the Environmental Working Group, three out of four—yes, three out of four—homes in America have harmful contaminants in their tap water. So that's why you got to check out Aquatrue. Aquatrue purifiers have a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers, which is what we have, take no installation or plumbing, and they remove fifty. 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters, and they're specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS swear it's like, can receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com. That's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter the code SHAMELESS at checkout. That's 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com and use the code SHAMELESS. S-H-A-M-E-L-E-S-S. AquaTrue.com code SHAMELESS.
1: There was one resource that I wanted to share with you specifically that I used when I was teaching. It is called Teaching Tolerance. It's just the most amazing website. They have like free lesson plans that really give a full picture of history and they have them separated by grade levels so that it's all age appropriate. But then they also do workshops. So you can ask your school or your district, can we bring in teaching tolerance to do a workshop for the teachers? Because the thing about it is that If our teachers aren't ready and if our educators aren't ready, if the adults aren't ready for the conversation, then it's not going to be a safe space for those children of color in the room because they're not going to know how to advocate how to address bias when it comes up or how to talk about the prejudices that their students are dealing with. So if they don't feel prepared, like they have the tools, then it's going to do more harm than good. So I think it's important for us as parents when we're wanting our schools to make this change, which it's it's so amazing and righteous for us to want those things for our children to look at it as a very long term project. So even if you spend this whole year preparing teachers, and then don't get to it until the next school year, that's okay, because we want to make sure that our educators are ready to have these conversations and that they feel like they have what they need to do it right.
0: I love that. I love that. So, so it sounds like going to the administration around leadership in the school and around what versions of American history is being taught in the whitewashing of American history. It sounds like for both of those, your recommendation is to like reach out, ask what is being done or what's kind of on the radar. And then being open to being a part of the solution and supporting the solution as well. Anything else you want to add to that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, that is perfect. And you could even ask like what curriculum do you use? Because depending on the district or the school, they might be using all different curriculums and you as a parent can volunteer. Can, would you mind if I look through it, you'll be able to pick out holes like pretty easily when you see that kind of stuff, especially like, When I pick up a Civil War book, I can tell exactly from like page two how it's going to go. Is it going to teach children about that the Civil War was about slavery, or is it going to teach children that the Civil War was about states' rights? So these are the types of things that we need to be looking at, like really deep diving into and figuring out, okay, well, if it's teaching about states' rights, that's inaccurate history. Let's get rid of it and find something better.
0: Yeah. And I'll say when I reached out to the school, my second email response was like, thank you for your reply. And also, and the principal was like, here's what we're doing. And of course, I was like, I think they could be doing more. (laughs) So because of course, you can always be doing more, right? Like no harsh criticism on her response at all. But I my second email back was like, thank you so much for this response. And also, would it be appropriate for me to go to the parent association to continue this conversation and get involved at that level. So I love that you brought that up as well because I think that that's an appropriate next response. And that's my next step, which I haven't done yet, but is to get involved with the Parent Association, which I to date have not really been involved in, but stepping up and starting some conversations there. We have a new president of the Parent Association of our school and I'm like, (laughs) he's gonna be like, who is this Sarah?
1: <laughs> I love that. And yes, you need other parents to fight this fight with you because it's long and it's hard and it's heavy. So you need those other people who are going to work that you can all work together to make these changes. I love that. And I love that you still have 8 years left because that's <laughs> of like you can make real impact in that amount of time. That'll be amazing to see.
0: Right. This episode is supported by Best Fiends. Okay, Best Fiends is a pandemic favorite, (laughs) for sure. So Best Fiends is a puzzle-like game that you can download on your device, and you can use it to solve their challenging little puzzles. You can collect cute characters. You can progress from level to level every day. It is something I've been hooked on for months now. And I will tell you, when I first got the sponsorship, when we were first talking about bringing Best Fiends to the show, I was like, yeah, I'll test it. But like, I'm not going to like play games on my phone all day. (laughs) and then I tested and I was like, oh, this is actually super fun. So I will tell you, I've gotten a little obsessed. I've gotten a little competitive. I have progressed through multiple hundreds of levels of Best Fiends now, and I love it. So over 100 million people are playing Best Fiends right now. It's been downloaded over 100 million times. So you've maybe already heard about it. You already know other people who are playing. If you are playing, send me a DM. I wanna know what level you're on. We can compare. We can have some friendly banter around our levels. Best Fiends is an exciting and unique puzzle game, unlike anything else out there. It is not addictive, but it is really fun, and it's a great way to kind of do something that's A little bit, it allows me to escape from the state of the world, but feel like I'm still like using my brain a little bit. So I actually like to listen to podcasts and play Best Fiends sometimes in bed at night, or if I have like a little break in the afternoon, right after I eat lunch, just fitting it in those places where I just want to like decompress for a few minutes. It's really great. So I'm loving Best Fiends. I know that you will too. They have thousands of levels already with new levels constantly coming every month, hours of fun right at your fingertips. So I want you to go check out Best Fiends. You can get Best Fiends for free, totally free download when you go to the Apple Store or Google Play. So that's Best Fiends. It's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Go to the Apple App Store or Google Play today. And well, what I think is really powerful in it, and what I kind of came to realize is, you know, reaching out to school administration right now, not I mean, this is obviously like definitely should be prioritized. And also schools are trying to like navigate a pandemic right now. And that is really having to be their very first priority because they don't even know if they can like reopen right now. Mm. So when we're looking at what how school how administration is choosing to invest time and resources right now, I understand that there's just a lot of chaos and uncertainty just around like can schools even open in the fall. And so I think that there are, it's empowering to me to think about being able to be a parent. And I know that there's other parents who want to, in our school that are interested in this as well, a parent that can be supportive in a way when the administration has so much on their plate between a pandemic and a cultural revolution. And like, we're not in the public school system, we're in the Catholic school system, which is a whole nother host of regulations and situations and things. But our school is generally very open to wanting to be involved in social justice issues and do the right thing and do better and all of those things. And so knowing that there's parents who want to be involved in that, I love the idea of bringing parents together to be supportive of change, rather than like sitting and waiting until an administration has the bandwidth to do it. Because yes, I think administrations are spread very thin right now. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yes, that's such a good point. So let's talk about anti-racism work that parents can do if they want to help their children. So this and this you actually just said a minute ago, like, let's arm our parent, our teachers with tools in a thoughtful and strategic way so that they can make sure that what the way that they're teaching and the way that they are sharing information with students creates a safe environment. And I think that when we look at how we as parents are showing up to be better anti-racist, It's also a process of being like thoughtful and strategic and not a sprint, but a like a long ultra marathon where it's like a little bit daily or regularly over time as we work on our own anti-racism in order to help our children be anti-racist as well. Can you talk about how parents what parents can be doing to sustain what needs to be done in order to support our children in that way long term?
1: Yes, I love how you called it a long ultra marathon because I think that that really gives parents the permission to take a deep breath and understand that they don't have to have all the answers right this minute. We cannot teach our children something that we don't know or understand ourselves. And for most of us, we have never had formal education about race and racism. So we are starting at a very elementary level, and that is okay. I think the biggest thing is modeling for our children what it looks like to find answers to questions that you don't know the answer to because that's going to happen So much when you are moving into this space of anti-racism, but you need to start by being honest with yourself about the biases that you hold. So really looking inward and figuring out, okay, what are these biases that I have? And then going to do some research and figuring out, is this a bias or is it something that's true? I think about a lot of times, especially with everything going on with the pandemic, people are saying things like, well, black people just have a lot of pre-existing conditions. They have diabetes, they have hypertension, they have heart disease. And my question to people is, well, why is that? Do you think it's just because our bodies are more susceptible to something like that, that our bodies are inferior in some way, that we just get diabetes randomly No. And then people can't answer that question of, well, why is that? So going and figuring out what is the root cause of black people having more rates of diabetes? Well, when you look into it, you learn that it's actually because a lot of communities of color are situated in what's called a food desert. And that just means that they don't have access to a local grocery store, which means that they don't have access to healthy food that's going to fuel their body in a good way. And so... And they did a study where they were putting these grocery stores back into these food deserts. And what they found was they had way less rates of diabetes and heart disease and all of these things and obesity, all of these things that we associate with communities of color. Well, well, when you're thinking about why that happens, it's not because they don't wanna eat healthy food and it's not because there's something wrong with their bodies, it's because they don't have the access to it. So when you start to make these connections for yourself, you can model all of this for your children, taking yourself through this process of questioning your biases and then figuring out what's really going on. And then comes another question, right? So, okay, well, how, why do so many people of color live in these under-resourced communities? Do you think it's because of personal responsibility? Because that obviously can't be the case because that's super racist. So it's like, if you really start digging into these things and peeling back the layers and asking yourselves these questions, you'll be able to find the answers and just showing your kids Our kids watch what we do like crazy, right? They're always watching us. They're always picking up on what we think about, what we talk about, what we care about. And so they are going to start seeing that and understanding that they have the power to do that stuff too. So just looking at your community through a critical lens and saying it out loud. If you walk into a restaurant and it's full of all white people, you can say, hmm. I wonder who's missing from this restaurant, and I wonder why that is, and then have a conversation with your child about it. Now, you don't have to necessarily do it around the dinner table every single time you go to a restaurant, right? But maybe on the way home, when you're in the car, did you notice that there was somebody missing from that restaurant? Who was missing and why? Just like your son noticing, oh, wow, this March is a lot different from that March. So what is going on here?
0: Yeah, I love that and I totally agree. Okay. In your in the beginning of your podcast, in the first episode I listened to, I was like so excited that you said this. You say at the beginning of every episode that you're helping people move from good intentions to confident action. And I was like, yes, 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 because I am like such a good intention person. But I also know that there's a big difference between intention and impact. And I also know there's like you know, a big difference between like sending thoughts and prayers and actually putting like boots on the freaking ground. So, (laughs) Can you talk about that your mission around supporting people to go from good intentions to confident action?
1: Yeah. So until really recently, white parents believe that if they just told their children to treat everyone equally, and if they didn't talk badly about people of other races, then we wouldn't have to deal with racism, right? And I feel like white parents are having this huge awakening of the fact that that's not the case, that even though they intended something really positive, well, most people (laughs) don't want to perpetuate racism. If you ask them, they're good people with great values who would say, I abhor racism, racism is terrible, right? But then when you ask them what they're doing to counteract it, they don't really have an answer. They don't have anything concrete. So that is what I'm trying to do with my podcast and with this movement is really give people the tangible tools for what they can do in their lives to fight against racism. Because Beverly Daniel Tatum, she is one of the most amazing scholars on the topic of race. She talks about racism being like a conveyor belt or even like one of those moving walkways at the airport that everybody's standing on this walkway and unless you turn around and start walking the other way and start taking direct action, your intention of not being racist is not going to match your impact because when you are not taking direct action, you are complicit in racism, which means that you're perpetuating it. Even though it's not what you're trying to do, you would never try to perpetuate racism that's what you're doing. And so, and a lot of times when people say things or do things that are racist and it's brought to their attention, their first response is, well, I didn't mean to, or that's not what I intended. But if you can shift your mindset to responding in a way with that's so filled with humility and grace and saying something like, oh my gosh, I am so sorry. I will not do it again. How can I help you heal? The intention that you had is going to be clear, because when you say to somebody, I'm so sorry, I won't do it again, how could I help you heal? They're not going to think they did it on purpose. They're going to think, oh my gosh, they really didn't mean to do this. And they want to come alongside me in solidarity and help fix this. So I think that's why we need to think about moving from these good intentions, your intentions are so great, you don't want to be racist, but you need to take action in order for that to actually be your impact.
0: Exactly. So you just mentioned the awakening that is happening. What are you most hopeful about? right now as you see this awakening and you see this cultural revolution unfolding?
1: Oh, my husband and I have talked so recently about how we have been so emotional these last few weeks and these last couple of months because... There is so much real change happening. I remember at the beginning of all of this, I called my parents and my parents grew up in the 60s and 70s. So they've been around for a long time and I'm black biracial. So my mom is white and my dad is black. And they have, you know, faced a lot as an interracial couple and also growing up, you know, on their own before they got married. And I asked them, what do you guys think? is this the same or is this different? Because I said, it feels different to me. And my dad got emotional. He said, this is different. He said, this is historical. This is history in the making right now. And we are smacked up in the middle of it, getting to be a part of it. And he was just in tears, so excited and moved by how different it felt. So I think that that is what I'm just so excited about because it's being moved from a partisan issue to a humanity issue. And it's mind blowing and amazing and uh, it's great.
0: Oh my gosh, that just gave me such big goosebumps. I love that your dad had that response and that that's what he's being able to witness right now. Like how powerful that must feel having lived from the 60s to now and to have this sense of like, oh my gosh, this is like actually something that could make a significant difference. Yeah. That's really hopeful.
1: It really is amazing. And I think, so my dad, we love Disneyland. We're just big Disney freaks. And my dad... (laughs) is born in 1955 so anytime he sees that was the same year disney was founded anytime he sees something that says disneyland 1955 he buys it because it's his birth year right (laughs) And so, but I am always like heartbroken to think about the fact that in 1955, when Disneyland was founded, he was not allowed to go, like he wouldn't have been let into Disneyland. And so to see the progress is so cool. And to see what they're even doing now with trying to be more inclusive and getting rid of the things that they know are openly racist. It's just, it's so amazing.
0: Oh my gosh. So, so great. How are you currently showing up as a shameless mom?
1: Uh, <laughs> I think the biggest thing is that I'm just trying to give myself grace and resting when I need to. Good. I mean, being... Pregnant with a toddler in the middle of a pandemic and cultural revolution, like I keep telling myself it's okay to be in survival mode. Survival mode is not forever, but it's okay to be here right now. And just taking some time to intentionally be with my little toddler because so much of this goes over her head and I'm always thinking about it and talking about it with anyone who will listen. I need to take time to think and talk about, you know, all the stuff that's going on in her world too. So just trying to be gentle with myself in that way.
0: I love that I think that we're definitely I mean you for sure in this place of I'm sure feeling like sometimes you're just putting one foot in front of the other and like you said survival mode and I feel like you might be in a position of looking back at this time to be like how did I get through that like how did I go through this (laughs) pandemic cultural revolution while pregnant with a toddler all that and when you're in it you just you have to do it so you just keep going and then you look back and you're like holy cow I really showed up yeah (laughs) yeah I love that. Oh my gosh, Jasmine, this has been amazing. Oh, I'm so grateful for you and for your work. So I want to tell people, one of the things I love about your podcast is that every episode that comes out, I'm like, "Oh, I know a little bit about that, but I should know a lot more about it." And every episode is the way you research and teach and educate is makes it so I don't want to say it's simple to digest, but it is you're very clear in your messaging and in the way you teach. And so I feel like I can just learn so much in a very short amount of time. And I feel like that's the gift of a teacher. And I actually, when you were talking about being a second grade teacher, I was like, maybe that's where we're at right now. Like we need to learn on this level of like having (laughs) things, not that you teach at a second grade level, but having things broken down into these really clear topics and then subdivided into more clear frameworks makes a huge difference when trying to learn and absorb so much history and information all at one time. So every time I see a new episode come out, I'm like, I think I know 10% of what I should know about that thing. And then I listen and I'm like, okay, now I know the other 90%. (laughs) So I'm so grateful for your work. Can you tell people where they can find you where they can listen to the podcast and connect with you and all the good stuff?
1: Yes. So my podcast is just the First Name Basis podcast. You can find it on any podcasting app. And then I'm most active on social media on Instagram. And that is firstname.basis. But we also have a Patreon community that we started recently that has been so fun. It's parents who are really committed to diving deep in this journey. You can contribute a monthly donation so that you can be part of this community. And we do monthly question and answer sessions. And I provide research. For all the research from my show. But then I also it's my space where I'm like, Hey, I'm reading this awesome article. I thought you would like it too. So it's just a great place to connect.
0: Thank you. I love all that. And I'm in your Patreon group. And oh my gosh, your information is is so generous. You give so much information that is so helpful and organized in such a way that just makes it really, again, simple to take in and take action on, which I love and just deeply appreciate. So I want everyone to go check out the podcast for sure. Subscribe to the podcast and then join Patreon where they can get a deeper dive on all of it. Jasmine, thank you so much. I'm so excited that we made this happen. And I think we need to do it again sometime. I think we need to do a follow up. Yes, definitely. After the baby, (laughs) like after all that, but I'm just so grateful for your work and really, really glad that we get to be connected.
1: Oh, me too. This was awesome. Thank you so much.